When I was a kid, I started having this reoccurring dream. I was playing in the park, and a man, a man without any face, came up and grabbed me. I fought him, but he wrapped my head and my eyes in strips of wet tape and threw me in a cell. It was dark, except for a small window that was way too high for me to reach. And sometimes, someone threw food from the window. Food that was obviously just leavings from someone else's plate. And I screamed and I cried and I cursed at whoever it was, but they never made a sound. And finally, I had had the dream so much that I knew he wouldn't answer. I stayed quiet, as quiet as the monster. There was no escape, but I checked anyway, each and every time running my cold fingers against the cold walls. For over a year, I was afraid to go to sleep because I knew the boogeyman, I knew that no-face monster was waiting to lock me in his prison. Even still, still today, every once in a while, as a grown man, I spend a night back in that cell. Nothing scares me more, but the thing of it is, the boogeyman's real. I read the newspapers sometimes and they seem like they're ripped from my childhood dream. Real people get taken away every day, stolen from their lives. Today in Snap Judgment, from NPR and PRX, we proudly present Abducted. What happens when you are in the wrong place at the wrong time? My name is Glenn Washington, and you know how we like to have a good time at the Snap Judgment. We do, but in all fairness, be forewarned, because we feature real people with real stories, this is a particularly intense show. It's a good show, but it is intense. We're going to start it off in China. Economic miracle, great wall, we own trillions of dollars. Scott Sanders was on a business trip, staying in a five-star hotel. But you know, the boogeyman, he doesn't care. I go to China a lot on business. So on a recent trip, I'm flying to Shenzhen. Shenzhen's this like city of 12 million people. It's my second day in Shenzhen and it's about five o'clock and I'm wandering through the streets. I'm about two and a half blocks from this five-star hotel that I'm staying at, the Shangri-La Hotel. This guy walks up to me and he, he's looking like he wants to ask a question. So I lean in to find out what's up. All of a sudden, three guys grabbed me. It was as if they had me in a straitjacket. I, I don't remember screaming or not screaming. It happened so quickly that they, they probably had hands over my mouth. They dragged me away, and in a split second, I'm in this doorway, and I'm being hustled up the steps to this dark apartment. They strip me of my clothes, and they take out my wallet, they rip it apart, and they pull out all my credit cards. And, one of the guys, he pulls out this rusty kitchen knife. It's like six or eight inches long. They're keeping me in place with this knife while they tie me to this cross. And it's sort of weird. I'm Jewish, so this is a side point, but I thought it was crucifixion-like. And then they bring out this four-foot pole with an eight-inch nail, and it's twisted onto the end. It's not one of those beautiful, shiny stainless steel nails. The nail is gnarly and thick and super rusty. And they take this pole and with the nail at the end, and they, they put it under my nose, and, and they're gesturing with this thing, and it's actually right under my right nostril. They make it really clear that if they don't get what they want, they're going to jam this nail up my nose. They've got my shredded wallet and all my credit cards. And, you know, there's this language barrier, but I understand. I get it. They want to pull the cash using my credit cards. They want to go to the ATM machines. And they're demanding the PIN numbers, I, except I don't know the PIN numbers. But I start guessing. You know, I'm using dogs' names and my kids' nicknames. I, I'm pointing to the letters on the cell phone keypad. But, you know, nobody speaks English. And everybody's gesturing at each other. And... Some time goes by and they get called from their colleagues at the bank and I imagine they're saying it's the wrong damn number. People are screaming, it's the wrong damn number. I'm sorry, I don't, I'm telling them, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you're saying, the wrong number, you know. They're not happy. 
are four guys. Two guys are in their 20s and two are in their 40s. And I'm thinking they could probably kill me and then go to a restaurant and have a nice lunch. And in this twisted state of mind, I'm thinking they'll probably have live lava and a sauce made from the saliva of the pigeon. It's the local delicacy. The whole time in my head is that talking head song. In another part of the world, you may ask yourself, how did I get here? I'm having these episodes of, of, of sort of white light chilling, heart fear palpitations, and I don't know if I'm screaming and I'm incontinent, and with all that going on, I'm, I'm calm and collected. Everything is reduced to slow motion. It's, it's you know, like when people talk about people freezing to, to death and you get a sense of serenity and warmth and clarity just before you die. That's sort of what it was like. Every once in a while, they go into the adjoining room and I hear them talking on the phone and they're conversing amongst themselves and I'm thinking, okay, well, I, I got to do something. Maybe I can wiggle out of the ropes. I got to try to escape, at least try. So I'm scanning the room. I know we're on the second story. I'm looking out the second story window. Maybe I can hurl myself through. There's always that medieval option of fingers and eyes and biting. First, I'd give them a headbutt and then grab my old 35 millimeter camera, smash it into somebody's skull. I got to do something. But then they come back and they take out cigarettes seems like they're smoking three cigarettes at a time and another call comes about the pin numbers not working and they're screaming at me and and they're yelling at me to tell them the correct pin codes but like what the hell am i supposed to do it's not like i'm holding out on them so i keep guessing frantically trying to hope that some of these numbers will work the main guy the guy in his 40s in the business suit he's smoking right in front of me now and he's holding the burning cigarette up to my face and there's this moment where he's looking directly into my eyes and then he drops his hand and he, he pushes the lit cigarette into the skin of my thigh. My skin is burning and I'm smelling melting skin and my mind leaves my body and I'm no longer there. Something like six hours had passed and some of my guests at pin numbers must work because I don't hear them in the other room anymore. And gradually I managed to loosen my way out of the ropes and, and I creep to the door to the adjoining room and I listen and I don't hear anything. And I, I open the door a crack and no one's there. I grab my clothes and I sort of frantically dress as I run out the door and I find myself back on the street in a day's shock. And I remember not feeling as happy as I thought I should be. It's a weird feeling. And I wind my way back to the hotel and there by the elevator and I'm thinking that this elevator is going to carry me back to the sanity and seclusion of my hotel room. Like that's sanctuary for me. I go in the elevator just at the same time that a clearly very American white couple and their two kids enter the elevator. And I don't know why, but they had this sort of overly optimistic white skin and everybody was dressed in layers of beige on beige clothing and super exuberant smiles. And we're in this intimate space and we're slowly going up 28 floors. And they say to me, they say to me, how's your day been? Zero to 60, I'm fully acting out every single detail of my horrific experience. I'm talking about the knife, the pole with the rusty nail on its end, being shoved up in my nose, the cigarette burns. I'm totally foaming at my mouth. I'm panting. Everything is rushing on me now. I've lost control. I'm probably jumping all over the elevator. And the kids have no color left in their faces. Like, all blood is drained from fear. And, and they're hugging their children, grabbing them. And they're looking back and forth between this crazy guy and the elevator floor numbers. I've just escaped from a small space where there is nothing but misunderstanding. And that's where I find myself again. That story was submitted to us from our own story sharing website from a listener. Thank you, Scott Sanders, for sharing your tale. And you're thinking, can I tell my story on Snap Judgment? Well, you know you can. 
do it like Scott did. Snapjudgment.org. You'll find full episodes, listener stories, snap films, all kinds of goodness. And while you're there, join us on the Facebook and the Twitter. But that's later. We've got a whole lot more show left, and you don't want to miss a minute of this one. Stay tuned. You're listening to Snap Judgment, Abducted, from NPR and PRX. We'll be right back in just a moment. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. This is our abducted episode, and we make a big deal at Snap Judgment about how this is not the news. It's not, but sometimes our guests give us a, a little glimpse of the human impact behind some of the headlines. And we're really thankful to work with the NPR news team in creating this next piece. Longtime radio listeners will already know the voice of Jamie Tarabay. She was the NPR Baghdad bureau chief during some of the most violent periods of the Iraq conflict. I remember Jamie's amazing reporting, and it provided one of those rare street-level windows into what was happening, and I remember feeling transported, and I thank her for that. Jamie reported on and witnessed horrific tragedy on a daily basis as a reporter. But wars, especially modern wars, don't recognize these demarcations between combatants, non-combatants, and journalists. Everybody suffers. Everybody suffers. And journalists, even the best ones, really the best ones, are human. Jamie Tarabay is no stranger to bloodshed. She was a war reporter, and for the last 10 years, she covered conflict in the Middle East. But even as a seasoned journalist, her stint as NPR's Baghdad bureau chief between 2005 and 2007 was terrifying. There were nearly 30,000 civilian casualties a year then, and she saw the ugliest side of humanity on a daily basis. 2006, 2007 were really scary years, 18-hour days and just crazy, crazy schedules and crazy conditions, things blowing up and people dying and disappearing. It was constant paranoia. You are watching everybody when you're out. One of the biggest concerns was kidnappings. You couldn't really be outside for more than half an hour because the sort of the word was that it took them half an hour to get a group together to come and take you. I actually had somebody say to me, that guy reckons he could get $100,000 for you. Sometimes you just knew when you looked at people and you could just see, you could see their eyes are just going cha-ching, 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 cha-ching. In a dangerous war zone, especially as a foreigner, you have to trust your team. Rely on them every day to keep you safe. And it's impossible not to build a relationship with the people who hold your life in their hands. Wherever we went, especially when it was really rough sort of times, everyone would be involved. We'd listen to what everyone had to say, the drivers, the office manager, the producer. We'd sit down, we'd map it out. Where are you going? Which road are you going to take? How long are you going to be there for? Abdullah was a student, a native Iraqi, and part of Jamie's team. She became close to him during her time in Baghdad. Abdullah was one of our translators slash fixers slash occasional reporter. He has always been part of my NPR Baghdad experience from, from day one, basically. So it was a huge blow to Jamie and her staff when the news came in. Their worst fears had been realized. The kidnappings had reached home. Abdullah's father had been kidnapped. 
and was being held for ransom. The NPR staff who were in the bureau while I was out were really scrambling to sort this out and and fix it and help, and you just don't know how to help. And it was really touchy. I didn't want to ask him anything. It's, It's this thing you just don't know if you can ask even because it's just going to hurt someone to remind them that there is still this situation that they haven't been able to to, to fix. But finally, Abdullah gave Jamie the chance to help him. He wanted to tell her his story. So Jamie turned on her tape recorder. This is what you hear on the news every day, but only this time it happened to me. Abdullah's father, Arif, was driving to take his brother to work. They did this trip every day, I guess. At a traffic junction, a car pulled up in front of them, pulled them both out of the car. They put their pistols on my father's head and my brother's head and um, asked them to leave the car. They took my father and they put him in the other car. Then they drove off, leaving Abdullah's brother in the street. They told him not to turn around until they had gone. Abdullah's brother went home and called him to tell him what happened. I didn't know what to do. I just... I sat and, you know, started crying and didn't know what to do. And his dad was sick and elderly and harmless. He wasn't political. He wasn't overtly religious or anything like that. He was just a really kind man. Abdullah's mother collapsed to the floor when she heard the news. And then Abdullah got a phone call. The caller ID said it was from his father. Abdullah recorded the call. I picked up the phone and there was a man talking and, you know, out of shock, I thought it, it was my father. And I was calling him, you know, father, is that you? It turned out to be uh, the guy who's negotiating from the kidnapper's side. I mean, it was a kind of strong voice. He talks slowly, but, you know, he's controlling the whole situation. And I started begging them almost in tears, you know, please don't hurt him. He's my father. He's an old man. He hasn't done anything. And the kidnapper says, yeah, we know. He says, okay, I want $100,000, 100000 American dollars. And there was no way, there, I mean, there was no way Abdullah had that kind of money. And, and he told him that. And he said, well, you know, you need to decide. It's your father. And your father told us that my boys love me. And he started threatening me that, you know, if you don't cooperate with us and do as we told you, you know what would happen to your father. We will torture him. He said, I'll, I'll, I'll crush his head and I'll send it to you as a gift. And Abdullah said, look, please give me time. And he said that there were a series of phone calls after that that followed where he was able to bring the price down. In the immediate panic, there was this really big scramble from Abdullah to try and get this money together. And he was calling up everyone in his tribe. You know, he was asking for advances on his pay. So the immediate concern was, we have to get him back. During one of the conversations where they negotiated over the ransom, Abdullah begged the kidnappers to let him speak to his father. And finally, his voice came over the line. And you can hear him saying, I'm okay, you know, inshallah. God willing. Abdullah organized an exchange with the kidnappers. I had to do it because nobody wanted to do it. My uncle said after he heard the conversation, you know, it's my brother, but I would have broken down. I couldn't deal with these people. When Abdullah finally got all the money together and he went to the drop-off point as these people had directed him to, they told him to wear a kafiyah, one of those scarves around his head, and uh, a long robe. So he looked like anybody else in the street, really. And they called him on the phone. And then I waited there and he told me to cross the street on the other side to put the money between some blocks that set up there. There's a space for two, three inches where you just drop it. And I asked when, is it now? Drop it and then go home. Abdullah dropped the money. And then what? While I was talking to him, the phone just died. Abdullah had forgotten to charge his cell phone the night before. And the, the tragedy, the tragedy that happened in this story is that by the time he finally got home to charge it, uh, he wasn't able to, uh, to reach anyone. He never spoke to his father again. His phone had been disconnected. But even if Abdullah's phone had been charged, it was unlikely that he would have gotten his father back. 
more and more elderly people started to go missing from the neighborhood where he lived. Almost every family paid the ransom. And none of them ever got anybody back. Abdullah decided that because of the kidnappings in his neighborhood, it was no longer safe to live there. He didn't want to lose anyone else, and there was no telling who was behind the kidnappings. An insurgent group? Or their next-door neighbor? There anyone. There anyone. It had become a way to make money. The police would say that you just needed three guys in the car and you had a kidnapping ring. It got to the point in late 2006, early 2007, that things had disintegrated so badly in Iraq that unless you were in a life of crime, you weren't living, you weren't able to survive. And it would be your next-door neighbor who watched you and saw how much money you had and knew your routine. You know, the fact that Arif would take the same road every day, whoever was watching him noticed that. When, you know, when we've had people go missing, this is the same sort of thing. We've always had to make sure that our staff never drove the same way home. So Abdullah took his family and moved. But it was very hard for his mother to go. She didn't want to leave. She didn't want to go in case Arif came back and found an empty house. You always hope that they're still alive and they're out there somewhere trying to come home to you. Um, but the idea that he wasn't, she wasn't there for him to come home to was just really, it was very difficult for her to, to do that. It was difficult for Abdullah to let go as well. It took him weeks to be able to go to the morgue in Baghdad in search of his father's body. And to go to the morgue is just basically, you're accepting that you have lost all hope of ever finding your, your person alive again. And so it was, very, it was very difficult for Abdullah to do that, but he decided, okay, I'm gonna go. Baghdad's central morgue in this time was completely overwhelmed by the numbers of bodies that were turning up and they were coming in every state. Horrible, horrible torture. Corpses were turning up without any heads to somebody's drills, burns, hands tied behind backs. It was just horrifying. And uh, at the morgue, what they do is you sit in a room, or if it's too crowded in there, people are standing outside and looking through the window. There's an overhead screen, like an overhead projector. It's basically like a slideshow of the bodies. Every time I go there, it's like hell. Families looking for their loved ones for the past three or four months. And every 10 or 15 minutes, somebody jumps and says, that's my son, or that's my father, or that's my husband. And they start crying, and everyone's saying, God is great. May God's mercy be on him. Allahu Akbar. God have mercy on their soul. Jamie really wanted to do this story for NPR in 2007 because she wanted Americans to come to terms with the way that this war affects civilians. When we did the story, it was good to be able to tell people what it is actually like. Being able to explain that it's not this sort of Hollywood ransom situation, you know, that always has a happy ending is something that I really wanted people to understand. But the story going public meant that Abdullah would have to come to terms with something, too. They knew that once it aired, there was no way the kidnappers would ever return his father. And I asked him, I asked him again and again, I said, are you sure about this? I mean, I, I don't know if this is a good idea. I mean, there's a possibility still. And he said, no, 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 I want to do this. Over the radio waves, Abdullah's voice spoke about cruelty and war and loss. But most importantly, it was also saying goodbye. We just want to say thank you, thank you to the family for sharing this story with us, for trusting us with this story. Thank you very, very much. NPR's Jamie Tarabay and Diana Douglas, thank you and the whole NPR news team for making it possible. The story was produced by our own Miss Stephanie Fu. You're listening to Snap Judgment, the abduction episode from NPR and PRX. Today, bad things happen to good people. We'll be right back after the break.
Welcome back to Snap Judgment. Our episode today, abducted. Now, we know we use a lot of oil in our lives. We know this. Got to drive to work, got to cook the dinner, got to pick up the kids after school, and we're dependent upon this black gold, this Texas tea. Most of us use about two and a half gallons of oil a day per person. And about 10% of that comes from Nigeria. And we know it has to come from somewhere. And that the business of oil, it can't always be pretty. But if you really want to know what it's like to be invested in the belly of an oil extraction beast, where hundreds of foreign workers have been kidnapped or abducted, guess what? You already are. This story begins in the swamps of the Niger Delta, an oil-rich region of West Africa, where a 68-year-old Texan named Macon Hawkins worked on a drilling platform for Shell Oil. He was busy minding his own business, working for the man, when a rebel insurgency decided to strike. Without warning, Macon's platform was surrounded by armed men. I saw these boats with all the red flags and all of that, and that was strange for the area. So I knew right away that uh, that was the uh, rebels, but everybody uh, over there had an AK-47. So they were firing those automatic rifles and kind of made you step lively. They, they came aboard, and the first place they came was the office. And I was in there trying to call our home base and explain that we were, looks like, going to be taken over with all of the gunfire and all that, so. And the rebels came and got you? Yeah. I've seen enough Western movies to put my hands up. <laughs> Macon and the eight other hostages climbed onto the rebel speedboat under a barrage of bullets. We were being shot at, so I ducked down just to keep my head getting blowed off. Then we took off for the rebels' uh, camp. They had huge motors on them, uh, around 500 horsepower. When they took off, well, they, they took off like lightning, you know. The boat sped past the Chevron platform past the Shell platform, past the Riverside villages, and deep into the Niger Delta. This was not friendly territory for a foreigner working on an oil platform. And they pulled up to a dock, told us all to get off. We were robbed. They got my wallet and they took all the money out of it. They told us who they were. They belonged to the MEND organization. MEND is the notorious movement for the emancipation of the Nigerian Delta. Mend rebels say the people of Nigeria don't see any of the rewards from Nigerian oil drilling in their own territory. They just get a landscape decimated by oil extraction. They told Macon that they were going to do whatever it took to get their fair share. They wanted the money for the sale of the crude split up. The All the money went to the government. They were going to uh, demand a certain part of that money. And so they held Macon and the others for all the world to watch. Kidnap, robbery, just some of the methods used by men fighters. The, the movement for the emancipation of the Niger has kidnapped foreign workers. Sprayed the platform with machine gunfire. Militants attack pipelines and terminals in Nigeria. Nigerian militants have attacked yet another pipeline in the oil-rich country. The conditions were comparable to uh, maybe a deer hunt, you know, out in the woods. We ordered our own food, and I'd ordered things that were in a can because I did not want to get our people sick, you know, like sardines and and uh, wieners. And so they would give you whatever you asked for? More or less. That's right. I mean, you know, I knew better to order caviar and such stuff as that. Macon and the other hostages sat around the camp with the rebels, eating their canned hot dogs and discussing politics, work, and money. And the more time they spent with this Texan, this Macon, the more fond the rebels became of them. We would chat them up, 
they talked about the poor and, and this, that, and the other, uh, about their people. Of course, uh, you know, it was obvious none of the houses had floors. They were just dirt, no electricity, no, no running water. And that was some things that mainly that they wanted. They wanted uh, running water. They wanted electricity. They didn't want to drink out of those rivers. Did the thought of how the oil proceeds were distributed ever occur to you very much? Was this something that you thought, well, this is unfair or this is wrong or anything like that? To be honest, after, you know, looking at their villages, their people, somebody needs to help them or, you know, they should. Rightfully, they should get some money or electricity. They had plenty of gas. You know, they wouldn't have any uh, problem generating some electricity. You know, they were getting nothing out of it, and, uh, and that's why they were taking hostages and all that. In other words, Megan kind of thought they had a point, and his sympathies were quickly becoming clear to the entire world. I was kind of singled out. Uh, as the spokesman. After a press conference staged by the Mend Rebels, the Washington Post published an article entitled Nigerians Make Demands with Hostages Support. But Macon's fellow captives were getting wary of his embrace of the rebels. There was a lot of people, uh, mostly uh, the other uh, hostages, kind of accused me of uh, siding in with the uh, the villagers and you know I was uh, kind of taken up for them but you know you can't help I mean <laughs> uh, white is white and black is black you see those little kids running around naked with no clothes on and uh, you got to have some feelings for those people I had to be careful as a spokesman I didn't want to uh, make anybody angry, even her own, her own hostages. Before he knew it, Macon was creeping up on his 69th birthday. The rebels knew it too, and as a favorite hostage, they wanted to give him something a little special, a little birthday present. They wanted to know if I wanted a, uh, a girl, and I said no. I don't want no girl. They were offering you a woman, a prostitute, for your birthday? Yeah, that's, that's what they were getting at. And, um, and you're the captive. Yeah. When they're busy offering you women and other gifts, is this aggravating the animosity between yourself and your fellow captives? Well, it could be, but, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't want to... Uh, caused any friction between me and my boys. I kind of knew where to, where to stop. They said, well, what do you want? I told them that I don't like this business. Uh, you know, I want to be free. I want to be free to move, uh, free to travel, free to talk and everything else. So they, they understood. They did understand. And on the morning of his birthday, one of Macon's closest allies, the rebel's head cook, told Macon a secret. Yeah, the old, the old chief eased up to me and he said, uh, Mr. Hawkins, uh, you're going to be released after lunch. I said, well, look, what about the rest of my friends? Oh, that'll be later on in the evening. In the movie version of this, you would stay there and say, no, not until my friends are released am I going to be released as well. Did that ever occur to you? No, I believed him. Of course, that was not the fact. Uh, the fact was, they kept three for about six more weeks. So it was really an eye-opener for me. It kind of woke me up, you know, to where I was at and what I was doing and, and the problems that they had in Nigeria. But Macon is still an oil man laying pipelines from Indonesia to the Caribbean. And so while the ordeal didn't change his career, it may very well have changed his perspective. Would you ever return to this area again to work? They told me not to come back. I did go back. 
Did you look at the people any differently when you returned? I sure did, uh, because I knew that so many of that group I was looking at were rebels. And I, I tried to be as nice and pleasant to all of them as I could. All right, um, thanks, Macon. Thanks a lot for that. Um, stay out of trouble. Stay away from them rebels. Here I am at the gas station. I better just fill it up. What do you say, Macon? <laughs> hope, it doesn't, hope this doesn't come back to bite you the behind there, Macon. Thanks a lot. Happy motoring. This story was produced by our own Miss Anna Sussman. And now, this happens a lot. I'm walking down the street, minding my own business. Someone will approach me, top speed, looking all crazy, confused, angry, upset. They say, Glenn. Glenn, when are you going to put on some more Jeff Greenwald? Jeff Greenwald, this, and Jeff Greenwald, that. We need more Jeff Greenwald, Jeff Greenwald, Jeff Greenwald. Look, I asked Jeff Greenwald, I said, look, hey, Jeff Greenwald, do you have any new stories for us? And it was kind of like asking the Arctic if it was cold. <laughs> it still is cold, Macon, no thanks to you, but it was kind of like asking uh, the dogs if he likes to bark. Of course, Jeff Greenwald had a story for us. And actually, this is probably, personally, this is one of my favorite Jeff Greenwald stories of all. Jeff Greenwald. I was uh, coming up from my first trip to Mexico with my girlfriend, Fern. I was 21 years old. Fern wasn't feeling so well. She picked something up south of the border, and our car had broken down, and... We're hitchhiking, trying to get back to San Francisco. Through the mirage of the heat haze comes this long purple Monte Carlo, and it just kind of comes cruising up. We go running over, and the electric windows buzz down, and there's these two really uh, hip-looking people in the car. This guy who looks like kind of a reformed pirate with a little bit of stubble and slick back black hair, and uh, this kind of cute blonde gal. I asked them where they were going, and they looked at each other, and they just laughed, and they said, we don't know. So they popped the trunk open, and Fern and I walked around to the back with our bags, opened up the trunk, and we looked inside, and it just seemed a little weird. I mean, inside the trunk, there was nothing except a spare tire, a golfer's cap, and this strange kind of damp stain that covered the low felt carpet but we just shrugged and threw our backpacks in and then we climbed into the back seat and off we went and it was glorious they wanted to know everything about where we'd been their names were tony and sue they'd come from they said some kind of wedding or party in texas and just decided they were in the mood for a road trip and we're driving along we're chatting and they're so curious and they're just animated and slapping each other's legs one of those moments where you know that of all the people in the world who could have picked you up, you got picked up by exactly the right people. We're getting a little hungry after about an hour or two in the car. We're heading through New Mexico and towards Arizona. We, we pull into a convenience store and we get some white bread and some bologna, some iceberg lettuce. We go out to make some sandwiches in the car and Sue sort of looks at, at Tony in alarm and says, we forgot to get dessert. But I slyly opened the bag that I'd bought, and inside was a Three Musketeers and a Snickers bar and a Mars bar. And I looked at Sue, and I said, uh, take your pick. And she just squeezed her boyfriend, Tony, on the shoulder, and she said, I like these guys. Tony asked me if I could contribute something towards gas. And that seemed to be reasonable, because I remember back in those days, a lot of people had bumper stickers on their cars and trunks that said, gas, grass, or ass, nobody rides for free. And I said, I'll handle gas. In fact, I just uh, had my first credit card. So I kept that wallet out on the dashboard, and whenever we needed gas, we would stop and use it. So we're driving on, uh, and we're, we're kind of thinking about what we could do, and it turns out that Tony and Sue don't really have any plans. They're happy to spend a day, two days, three days exploring the Southwest with us. We, we drive, we see a sign for a place called Blue Mesa. So we drive about 20 minutes, and then we come to this parking area, and the four of us get out of the car, and uh, Fern says, you know, Jeff, I don't think uh, I want to do some hiking. I'll just stay right here in the parking lot near the restroom. 
And Sue says, I'll, I'll stay with Fern. You two guys go. So Tony and I set off on this little trail. We get to this overlook, and there's no real fence. There's just kind of like a cliff that drops off about three or 400 feet. And in the distance, this beautiful solitary mesa. And there's this warm wind coming up the cliff. And Tony looks at me and says, did you ever feel like you could fly? He said, let me show you something. And Tony went and stood right on the edge of the cliff with his heels on the cliff. And I grabbed the back of his belt. And he put his arms out and he leaned forward, spread eagle, leaning over the cliff. And I was just straining as hard as I could, holding the back of his belt and pulling him back to make sure he didn't go go over the edge. And I pulled him back and he said, okay, now you try it. And I took my place on the edge of the cliff and Tony grabbed the back of my belt and I just leaned forward. And I felt the wind come rushing up through my face and these particles of dust blowing up from the mesa. And I said, this is great. just yanked me back. I was just overcome. I just shivered like a dog and I threw my arms around him. But he stiffened up and I I backed off. And I said, thanks. I am so glad we met you guys. You guys are the greatest. We drove on. We decided we were all going to spend the night together. The four of us shared a room and it was uh, one of those little motel rooms. Not much going on except a TV. And I remember we were channel surfing and uh, I think MASH was on. Uh, Fern and I shared a bed and Tony and Sue had a bed. And we lay down. We were were pretty dog tired and um, all fell asleep. And at some point during the middle of the night, I woke up and I, I was kind of, you know, woozy, but i sure I heard something. I heard this voice and it was like, uh, just until tomorrow, just until tomorrow, then drive straight down to San Diego. Whack them like I told you, like the last guy. And I didn't know who was talking and I didn't make much of it and I just fell back to sleep. And the next morning I woke up and I sat up in bed and just in time to see the door to the room open and Tony walked in with four cups of black coffee and styrofoam mugs. Fern was really not doing so well. She was feeling very, very sick and she and I climbed into the back of the Monte Carlo and we set off heading towards Flagstaff. Every 10 minutes, whenever there was a rest area, she had to run out and go to the bathroom. And Tony and Sue seemed to be getting a little nervous. Whenever we stopped, I saw them looking in the rearview mirror and we stopped at a rest stop, and Fern was gone for about 10 or 15 minutes. And Tony just looked back to me, and he said, Do you think she's all right? Sue said, Maybe you better go check on her. So I jumped out of the car, and I ran into the bathroom, and uh, I found Fern in there, and she was curled around one of the stalls, just whimpering. And I knew she was really, really sick. I realized she had amoebic dysentery that she'd picked up in Mexico. So I said, You just wait right there. Drink as much water as you can. We'll take you into Flagstaff and get you some help. And I dashed out into the parking lot. It was about 105 degrees outside, and I remember it took a second for my eyes to adjust to the light, and I couldn't believe what I was seeing because the Monte Carlo was gone. And I ran frantically around the rest area, and they were were nowhere to be found, and our backpacks weren't there either. There wasn't wasn't anything. My wallet, everything was gone. They They had taken off. And the sun started to sink towards the hills, and I realized, uh, we got to get out of here. I called the police, and the patrol car brought us back to Flagstaff and just dumped us off, and Fern couldn't even walk. And I carried her to the nearest emergency room in town. They saw her, they took her pulse, they threw on a stretcher, and they raced her into the intensive care unit. And about an hour later, the nurse came out and said to me, 20 more minutes, you would have lost her. I spent the night in the hospital waiting for her to get better. The next morning, we were faced with the reality that um, we just had nothing. We had no money. We had no clothes. And we still had to get back up to San Francisco about a day and a half's drive away. We walked together to one of the truck stops near the outskirts of town. And she was able to um, convince this burly truck driver named Squidge to uh, let us ride in the back of his uh, tractor trailer. And he drove us all the way up to San Francisco and dumped us off uh, outside of the flower market. It had been a bummer, but it was over. And so I went back and started my job as a camp counselor at the Jewish Community Center in the Presidio in San Francisco. About a week later, at about two in the morning, there's a knock on my door. It's the telephone. Your father is calling. And I took the phone and he he's like, uh, Jeff, is everything all right? Our house is surrounded by squad cars. These police say that you have been robbing stores and banks all through Nevada and Central California. And suddenly it all came back to me my wallet on the dashboard, these guys who dropped us off, Tony and Sue, must have been doing something and dropping pieces of my ID along the way. How else could this have happened? And indeed, this was the story. 
Well, it turns out that the two people who picked us up, Tony and Sue, their real names were uh, Bella and Sam. They had escaped from the Louisiana Forensic Unit for the Criminally Insane. They'd ended up on a golf course somehow and ran into some guy who was unloading his car. They killed him with one of his own golf clubs, stolen the Monte Carlo, and then just started driving. And after about a day, they'd seen me and Fern on the side of the road and picked us up. After they dumped us off, picked up another hitchhiker, cut his throat and left him by the side of the road after stealing his wallet. No one knew where they were. They were still at large. We're offering you protection, the FBI agent said. These guys know that you can identify them. They may come for you. They know where you live. And I sort of got into this whole macho frame of mind at that point. And I was like, this is a matter of pride. These guys were my friends, and they dumped on us. I want to be the first one to confront them. I have some things to say to these guys. And I told the FBI agent, no, I don't want any protection. So I went back to work at the daycare center. Whenever we were out in the play yard, any time a Monte Carlo came cruising up the street, I just would freak out. Is this them? Are they going to come out with a machine gun and start shooting at me and these kids? So I called the FBI back, and I got in touch with this agent. And I said, Uncle, I give up. I, I'd like some protection. And he said, it's funny you should call because we were going to call you this afternoon. We apprehended Bella and Sam this morning. They were caught outside of Redding, California. And I said, did you find our backpacks? Were our backpacks in the trunk? There was a slight pause in the line, and Tennyson said, what they found in the trunk was the body of the last hitchhiker they picked up, cut into five pieces. I think that your backpacks are probably history. So after all these years, I've, I've had plenty of time to think about it, and my, my take on it's quite different now. I just think back on the time we spent together, listening to the music in the back of the car, uh, Sue's delight at those candy bars, Tony holding me over the cliff, his hands the only thing keeping me from falling those 400 feet. We loved them. We loved those killers. And they loved us. They had a choice. And their choice was to leave us with our lives. It was the only gift they could really give us. But the greatest gift I think that anybody has ever given me on the road. very, very busy man. Catch him while you can. He has a new one-man show out called Strange Travel Suggestions, and I know he's got plenty. And not just that. Not that alone would be enough for some people, but Jeff, he has a new book out as well. It's called Snake Lake. It's available in stores everywhere. It's right on my nightstand. It's amazing. Jeff Greenwald. Never go anywhere with men or ladies you don't know. Being safe is often no more than applying good judgment in everyday life. Judgment, judgment. Most everyone knows how dangerous it can be to hitchhike. There are other traps you need to know about. Then this man came up and said, would I like to see some puppies? Hey kid, let's go to the arcade and play some video games. What do you say? The best thing to do is scream, kick, fall down on the ground, scream, kick, fall on the ground, scream, kick, fall on the ground, and kick, 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 kick the person who is trying to take you. Snap Judgment was produced by myself, but never alone. Never, ever alone, friends. 
would you please bring out the dancing girls for Mr. Uber producer Mark Ristich, Mo Steph, Steph Judgment Stephanie Fu, and Rita Daniels. She's the best cook by far we have here at Snap Judgment. That was delicious, Rita. Thank you for that pie. Anna Sussman, who doesn't like pie, but she has eaten a rat in her past. Will Abina, who doesn't eat, he's half man, half machine. And Joe Golding likes to play with matches. Somebody stop him. If you're down at the lanes with the crew, getting your strikes and spares on, and you see somebody trying to bowl in their street shoes, messing up the floor, don't holler and yell. That's the Corporation for Public Broadcast. Just take him up to the counter nice and slow, and get him some bowling shoes. Many, many thanks to the CPB. And if you're painting the house this weekend, you might be wondering what color to use. Well, tell the man to put in a little public there and a little media, and what color do you get? Why, it's PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, putting the public in public media, PRX to the ORG. We remain inspired by the group Youth Speaks because, as you may not know, the next generation can speak for itself. And even though this, this is not the news. In fact, you could run away with Jeff Greenwald, find the resting place of the Ark of the Covenant, open it, unleash its unholy glory, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.